Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, when you get there, if you will go ahead and stand, we'll read the passage together. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, it is done. I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you for these precious words. And we pray that you would help us in this season of transition. Our hearts are full of joy and heaviness this morning. Lord, ultimately, knowing your ways, we thank you for both. Make this day precious in your sight. Help us as we sharpen one another. As we say goodbye. As we resolve to press on to fulfill your will so long as we have life and breath in us. Help us, Lord, as we consider your word this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Can you grab it? Amen. She has it. Here, let me see that. Sorry, I'll explain this later. Give me 20 seconds here and we'll we'll move on. All right, Revelation 21. And uh I suppose this will be a different kind of message this morning. We are going to end up back in that passage, but we're going to take the backcountry scenic route on our way to get there. I'll tell you, I was uh, asking the Lord this morning to help me maintain composure while preaching today. I know that's going to be difficult, but I suppose if I'm unable that you will understand, and biblically speaking, I'll be in good company, so we'll just press forward and and, uh, see what happens. Now, many of you know that for years I have uh, maintained the practice most of the time of keeping journals, and I highly recommend doing that if you're able. It's not a biblical requirement, I know, but it can be such a help, and uh, one of the areas it's a help is to go back and examine your thought processes from years ago, and uh, I know many times I could tell you I've gone back uh, later and realized how off-base some of my thinking was. And I thank the Lord for the further light he's given. And not to mention, we crack up at reading things that our children have said. And 
and reading through trials and answered prayer and just the general happenings of life. It's a precious thing to go back and to remember. Well, this past week I was reading through my entries from exactly four years ago. It was late September of 2014, and that was exactly when uh, my wife and I, for the first time, were flown down here uh, to meet those of you that were uh, part of this church at the time. Of course, we have fond memories of, of that experience, and it wasn't long after that that we received word that the Johnson family was heavily considering moving here. In fact, it was sort of an offhand statement that wife made to husband, uh, hey, we should move to Montana. I'm told the response was, let's do it. And her response was, are you serious? And his response was, sort of. And uh, well, you know uh, how the rest of the story went. Maybe I'm not getting the details quite right, but it was something to that effect as it got back to me. Uh, now at the time, I was uh, profoundly shocked uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, obviously, this was quite a different world. Uh, from where Eric had come from, and uh, we didn't realize that they had sensed the Lord was uh, moving them elsewhere. They just uh, didn't know where yet. They had heard with Abram the get out of your country, but they didn't necessarily know uh, where they were going to be heading. And, and unbeknownst to us, Helena, Montana provided uh, that place for the Lord to say, all right, now, uh, now go there. Um, in fact, uh, they, I think, decided to move here before we did. And I remember having the discussion saying, well, I haven't even been voted in as the pastor there yet. And so when that finally happened, we called them and said, all right, I guess the horse is in front of the cart now, at least. Uh, so we do plan to go. And uh, precious memories. And I'll tell you, candidly, we realized going in the danger of such a proposition. Some of you may know that extended family converging from two different locations in the same church is not always a wonderful thing. Uh, but knowing them and we trusted the Lord and went forward, and it, it has been nothing short uh, of a blessing. I think uh, many of you were there in the middle of the day in June, 101 degrees outside with no wind on the south side of their house, uh, unpacking. I remember climbing out of that U-Haul, and it was 101 outside, and it felt cool because the U-Haul was so hot. <laughs> and I think all of us would say that uh, we thank the Lord for sending them here. I know for us, uh, if we would be close to them and like-minded with them if they weren't related to us, it's just a bonus they happen to be family. And I want to thank the church family for receiving them. In fact, many of you seem to have almost forgotten they're related, and that, that really doesn't factor into the equation. You're just able to appreciate them for, for who they are. And they came here with the mindset that they would be available to help in whatever way was needed. And they've certainly done that with encouragement and support, prayers, babysitting, teaching, preaching, counseling, hospitality, uh, technological help. Many of you know I need that badly. Just a general servant's heart in a variety of unspoken areas. And it was our Lord himself that said, Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Let him be your servant. One of, one of the qualifications for leadership, there's lots of them, but one of those is knowing how to serve. I know it's that qualification is one of the many things I think is going to fit them well for this next phase in life. I can tell you candidly, I've learned some things from their servant's heart. You know, my pastor from Alaska just up and stopped through this last week, and 
It's made me reflect on things I could have done differently back there before becoming a pastor myself. In fact, I talked to him about some of those things and I realized I could have handled some things differently. I'm thankful for the way the Lord teaches us as we go on. Well, now their uh, chapters in Helena have been written, except for the final period. And uh, I'll never forget last Thanksgiving. I think most of you have heard the story. I'll rehash it just for fun. Uh, last Thanksgiving, it was unseasonably warm. Remember, it had snowed early, and it was about uh, 60 degrees on that day. And... Uh, Eric and I were about three and a half miles in the wilderness at 8.40 in the morning, laying flat on our backs, just laughing. Uh, because out of the ridge line, out of the rainbow, just next to the rainbow, comes this nice buck just sprinting over the hill. We were stalking these other ones. And this buck comes roaring over the hill. Something had spooked him and comes running right at us. And so we dropped down. And I think he'd have ran right between us if he didn't get shot before he got to us. And uh, we just laid there laughing and thanking God for his goodness. And we sat there staring at the rainbow. And uh, little did we know what was going to happen in the next 12 months of how precious of a memory that would actually become. But we know this afternoon, we're going to watch their taillights disappear over the mountains. And I mentioned to you before, in fact, they were out of state when I said it, the first thing I did when all of this came up uh, was to give God a truckload of reasons in private, in prayer, of all the reasons why he couldn't do this right now. I did. And uh, the Lord had to help me work through, not that I was telling God what to do, you understand what I'm saying, but sometimes in our pleading with him, we think our reasoning's pretty sound, and the Lord can show us over time that our reasoning isn't as sound as we thought. Well, gradually, of course, the Lord made uh, things plain. And just so you know, for the record, their mindset has been very much wanting God's blessing and realizing God's going to work through a variety of checkpoints. Uh, they were very interested. I'm no dictator. I hope you know that. But they were very interested to know what their pastor thought about this. Did I have reservations? Did I have red flags? And the answer to that is absolutely not. I mean, from my vantage point, I see the fingerprints of God all over this decision. And as difficult as it is, can say, I rest in his sovereignty. I mean, what is it we've been quoting? In how many things? Give thanks. Because God's will never contradicts. God's best for them is God's best for us. And he maketh no mistake. Now today we have the uh, temporal sorrow and the eternal joy of doing what New Testament churches have been doing for nearly two millennia. Sending forth laborers into the Lord's harvest. Now I think most of you would agree that few words in the English language uh, provoke as deep of memories and emotions as the word goodbye. Even as I say that, I bet some of you are replaying scenes from your past. The painful partings, words that should or should not have been said, family holidays coming to a close, changing relationships that come, moving out of a certain town, uh, watching an airplane take off and fly away, or 
uh, maybe standing in a cemetery near a fresh mound of soil. But in those moments, it's like certain faces, certain conversations, certain emotions are permanently etched in our memories. I don't know if there's science behind it, but perhaps our minds become more alert when we perceive that something is ending. We tend to drink it in. In a tempestuous world such as this, there are few certainties. But one of those certainties is that with every single hello comes the strong possibility of farewell. Like any subject that's so universal, the Bible does have a great deal to say about this one. In fact, the Bible bookends the subject of goodbyes. From the first parting that occurred in the human race to the day when goodbye is no longer a part of our vocabulary, the Bible covers the whole gamut. And so this morning we're going to examine the history and the future of goodbyes. Obviously we cannot touch them all, but we'll at least cover what we can. Turn back with me, back to the other book end. Back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Of course, the scene there is just after the world's created. Very good. Here comes the tempter, presenting the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life. You know the fall that happened. Genesis 3, verse 8 says this, And they, that's Adam and Eve, heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The next statement's meant to be shocking. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. I think it's necessary to point out at the beginning it was not God that brought the first goodbye into the world. It was mankind and his sin. From God's side, this was one everlasting hello. It was ongoing bliss. It was ongoing communion with him as a, in a flawless paradise. Man was going to be completely and joyfully ignorant of the ravages of sin. Verse 7, when they partook of that, it says, the eyes of them both were opened. Having your eyes opened isn't always a good thing, is it? In their case, their eyes were open to a life underneath the bondage of the devil as a master. They said goodbye to truth. They said goodbye to fellowship with God until he intervened. They said goodbye to everlasting life. They said goodbye to paradise. They said goodbye to painless childbirth, to sweatless work, to a thornless world. And the promise of the curse that God gave that man would return to the dust was a guarantee that billions of goodbyes would be made over graves as long as man lived on the earth. Verse 24 of that chapter, you see the world's first heavily armed border appear. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims. A flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. 
God placed cherubims there, which are pictured in Scripture as guarding his holiness, holding flaming swords of goodbye, banning entrance into the garden and access to that tree of life. Aren't you glad, though, we can insert back in verse 15 what's called the Proto-Evangelum, the first gospel, that God begins to give the promise there that one day he's going to say goodbye to the devil's domain and he's going to say goodbye to the sin problem. And that promise comes right on the heels of sin. Of course, in Genesis 4, we find the man Cain saying goodbye to salvation by faith. When Cain brings that offering that God had prohibited to the altar, Cain became the figurehead of all false religions to follow. Maybe you've never made that connection, but when the Bible talks about the way of Cain, it's talking about the way of salvation by human merit. And what Cain did was set the tone for every religious system that has ever come, which has denied the way of salvation God presents in the Scriptures. Cain said, goodbye to grace. Goodbye to mercy. Goodbye to justification. In fact, Adam and Eve then said goodbye to their second son as he was slaughtered by his brother. And there it was goodbye to world peace. And that was the first of millions of killings that would occur here on planet Earth. And then we see Cain saying the first final goodbye to God from an individual in chapter 4, verse 16. You can scan there if you want. It says, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, obviously, theologically, we know Cain couldn't go anywhere where God was not. This wasn't so much a geographical as it was a spiritual description. Cain gave his definitive and final thumbs down to God and said goodbye to you. Going my own way from your presence, you're no longer welcome in my world. And of course, Cain's descendants from there become very successful and ingenious and wealthy with one major flaw. They lived as though God didn't exist. Genesis 5 has been called the roll call of death. And what you read walking through that repeatedly is so-and-so lived and he died and he lived and he died and he, he lived, he had children and he died. And it's repeated over and over and over and over again. A reminder that all of us will bid farewell to this planet, even if we were to live nine centuries, after this vapor is over, so prepare accordingly. Now Enoch said goodbye in his own way in that chapter, didn't he? And quite a unique goodbye when he was carried off in a flaming chariot to heaven. In Genesis 7, the Lord says unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house unto the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. And there when they entered that ark, Noah and his family said goodbye to the entirety of the old world. All of the flora and fauna except what was on the boat with them. All of the people. All of the technological advancements. All the comforts that man had devised. And when Noah came off that boat, God made it plain. Things were different now. He couldn't go back. A man was now a meat eater. Human government would be instituted. Capital punishment would now be necessary to restrain evil. And God would never again destroy the world by water. 
Genesis 11, roughly 100 years after the flood, you have the first time man collectively voices his goodbye to God. And there at the Tower of Babel, the entire population of the world, save a handful, mathematically Noah would have still been alive. But the vast majority of the human population speaking one language, moving in one mass, and they gather there in the plain of Shinar, and they say, let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Which was, by the way, in direct defiance of God's command to go and be fruitful and multiply. God said, spread. They said, no. God said, worship me. They said, worship us. So mankind collectively turns his back on God. And of course, Babylon... It would go on to become the symbol of the satanic anti-God world agenda. Clear up until Revelation chapter 18, you can trace it through. And you know the story in Genesis 12, Abram's commanded to say goodbye to Ur of the Chaldees. To come out from among them and to be separate. And any real Christian, especially if you were saved later in life, can identify. You were given new life. You turned your back on your own personal Ur of the Chaldees, didn't you? There were relationships. There were places. There were activities. There were thought patterns. There were possessions that had to go. And as a Christian, you know by experience, if you're walking in fellowship with God, there are many goodbyes that have to happen, aren't there? To say yes to God is to say no to a good many things. Don't worry, we're not going to cover the rest of the Bible in this kind of detail. Just sailing through the rest of the Old Testament, we could stop to say goodbye to the patriarchs as they finish their pilgrimages and enter into rest. Goodbye, Abraham. Goodbye, Isaac. Goodbye, Jacob. We could say goodbye to Pharaoh's army as they pursue the Jews into the Red Sea depths, never to be seen again. Goodbye to Sodom and Gomorrah as the sin cities of the ancient world met their demise. Goodbye to a dominant, prosperous, and unified Israel as Rehoboam ushers in a civil war. Goodbye to the Shekinah glory cloud of God departing out of the temple and the book of Ezekiel as he slowly moves to the east. His presence, visible presence, gradually departs. Goodbye to the northern tribes as they're carried off to Assyria. Goodbye to the southern tribes as they're carried off to Babylon. Goodbye, old Jerusalem. As the glorious walls are bashed to pieces and burned. Goodbye, Solomon's temple. Goodbye, brazen altar. Goodbye, Ark of the Covenant. Who knows where that is? There's still debate. Goodbye, menorah candles. Goodbye, a large washing bin with the oxen beneath it that was chopped up and carried off to Babylon's spoil. By New Testament times, it had already been goodbye Assyria, goodbye Babylon, goodbye Greece, and hello Rome. Our Lord knew something of goodbyes in the days of his incarnation, didn't he? It's not directly stated, but I think it's a very accurate inference that... uh, His adopted father, Joseph, sometime during his childhood, did die. The Lord commits the trust of Mary in John's hands. 
as Joseph was gone. So our Lord knew what it was like to say goodbye to an earthly father. He said goodbye to popularity when he denounced the evil of his culture and called things what they were, even religion. He said goodbye to many professing disciples when they could not bear the truth. And of course, he even stood there weeping at the tomb of his friend Lazarus to say goodbye in John 11. And I know we look and say, why cry when he knew he was about to raise him up? There's so many lessons in that chapter, but here's one of them. That's just a picture of every single funeral for every single Christian you've ever been to. The Lord's able to weep with you at the loss, knowing that person is going to walk out of that tomb. And even now, they're alive in his presence. But Jesus still weeps with us in those moments. John 13 to 17 documents in great detail our Lord's farewell Passover with his intimate followers. Now, we were here on Wednesday night recently, but... The Lord says in chapter 16, verses 6 to 7, But because I have told you these things, sorrow hath filled your hearts. I mean, here they are full of consternation. And then he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. I think that statement must have hit them like a frying pan. Did he just say, It's good for us that he's leaving? exactly what he said because the Holy Spirit was about to take up a new ministry that wasn't going to happen with Christ here bodily present by the way you and I are living in a more privileged age than those who had Christ there bodily with them do you understand that we have a Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit in a way that they didn't But one of the things he says is that in this present world, in God's design, goodbyes are necessary sometimes. Especially here where he told them this was advantageous. And of course, can we fathom the goodbye that Christ felt on the cross when he was forsaken by the Father and made sin for us? I tell you, no goodbye in history has ever been as painful as that. We can't enter into it. We can't understand it. But to bear the infinite condemnation of God Almighty in those hours on the cross is astounding. And think of the roller coaster for the disciples. Watched him beaten and bruised and suffering and nailed to that cross and mocked. And all the while they're thinking, I thought this was him who was going to restore the kingdom to the Jews. Even though he told them repeatedly he would die, it still didn't click. And uh, in the aftermath, they're really bewildered when he's laid in the tomb. And all of a sudden, here comes these rumors that he's alive. And they're very slow to believe that until they see him. Can you imagine when he came back, they thought, oh, we're not letting him go now. Until Acts chapter 1, when he ascends up. And the angels asked them, ye men of Galilee, why why stand you here gazing up into heaven? I don't know about you. I'd have been standing there gazing too. I'd have been standing there gazing saying, can you please come back now? What are we supposed to do? 
The Lord had told them it was expedient, but that was hard to swallow for a bit, wasn't it? Well, the churches in the New Testament sure knew something of goodbyes, didn't they? Acts chapter 8 and verse 2. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. The Bible doesn't record a lot of the questions that may have been asked. Lord, this was such an angelic man. So full of the Spirit. Must he be taken? Yes, he must. We see a partial reason in Acts 9 when Saul of Tarsus says goodbye to his old life and his enmity with Christ. And then he has to say goodbye to his popularity and wealth. Saul enters chapter 9 as this respected and wealthy yet demented religious man filled with rage against Christians. And by the time he leaves chapter 9, he's a fugitive from the ranks of Phariseeism, and there's already been multiple attempts on his life. What a change. Acts 12, the Jerusalem church is again in mourning. Saying goodbye to James as he's beheaded by Herod. And then they're having a prayer meeting begging God not to make them say goodbye to Peter too. You remember because he was arrested and he was about to lose his head. In Acts 13, turn there if you would. We'll park there for just a second. Acts 13. <clears throat> a couple quick principles as we walk by. The center of gospel influence sort of transitioned from Jerusalem and then to Antioch, and that's a long discussion. But Acts 13 says this, Now there were in the church those at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul. For the work whereunto I have called them. When they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Just a few important principles. One, God raises up mature brethren within the local church, not so that all of them will stay. Really implied in the heart burden of Lord. We pray that you would send forth laborers into your harvest. Implied in the heart burden behind being able to pray that is that the Lord is going to raise up some among us to answer that prayer. And it's going to hurt sometimes. It says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate those two into the work I've called them. As a local assembly is in fellowship with God, they're able to recognize his calling on the lives of those that he's raised up for other purposes. Now, in this particular passage, the Holy Spirit spares us the details of the emotions involved. But I'm sure there were many. In Acts 15, we find a rather unexpected parting, and I think it's supposed to surprise us. These same two men that were just selected by the Holy Ghost to go out and do a work, now there comes this contention over Barnabas' nephew. 
It says there in Acts 15 that the, the contention was so sharp that they departed asunder one from another. There's a lot of interesting things about that passage. I think here's one of them. Both of them had good biblical reasoning for where they were standing. Both of them had a justifiable position. You know what else is interesting? God doesn't declare a winner so-called, does he? I mean, you and I read that and we're thinking, who is right? Why do you think the Lord doesn't tell us? Coupled with the fact that both of these men went on, a scriptural record follows Paul, but Barnabas went on to do a tremendous work for God elsewhere. Now, one of the things that instructs us, sometimes there's goodbyes that we don't understand why they have to happen, yet they still happen. We don't always get it. In this case, both sides were used. And maybe the most emotional, you can flip there to Acts 20, maybe the most emotional of all New Testament church goodbyes occurs on the shores of Miletus. Paul's traveling through on his way to Rome, and from Miletus he calls uh, for the elders of what was one of the major flagship Gentile churches at Ephesus, and he calls them together, and he says many things to them, but in verse 28 he tells them, Take heed therefore unto yourselves. This isn't a rosy picture of smooth sailing. He's telling them, Warfare's a coming, wolves are surrounding. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. Who makes overseers, by the way? God does. To feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For this I know, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. All the parts of the great loving words, but with a tremendously sober warning. And we see in verse 36, when they had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. Tears of farewell. And then, of course, there's the two farewell epistles from the two most well-known apostles, 2 Peter, 2 Timothy, written by Paul, the swan songs of these two men, when they're just about to end their pilgrimage by execution at the hands of Nero. Now, fast forward to the end of the time of biblical revelation. By the time John's banished to the Isle of Patmos to work in that salt mine and begins to pen the book of Revelation, lots of other goodbyes, had taken place. By the time Revelation was written, all of the other apostles were gone. John had either attended or heard about 11 separate funerals of that original band, all of which had been executed. Most of the names we're familiar with in the New Testament had been martyred. Jerusalem, two decades before Revelation was penned, Jerusalem had once again been entirely wiped out. 
Herod's temple. You remember when the time of the Lord walked the earth, it was 40 and 6 years they'd been building it. Now you have to understand the significance of that. Herod's temple wasn't another temple. Herod's temple was an expansion of the temple that had been built centuries earlier when they came back from the captivity. So not only did you have the symbolism of return from captivity, but then you had this marvelous expansion that went on for decades after the crucifixion of the Lord and then just a handful of years after its completion. Roman armies came, leveled it to the ground, burned it, melted the gold, and pried the stones apart so that not one stone was left upon another, just like the Lord had said. It was goodbye to Israel once again as a sovereign nation at that point for the next 19 centuries. I was thinking of the Apostle John some this week. I wonder among mortal men if there's ever been somebody that felt the loneliness he must have felt banished to that aisle with all the things I just mentioned having happened. And then the early church was about to say goodbye to the last living apostle. The apostolic age was over. Written revelation was completed. And in that final book of Scripture, you can turn there to Revelation if you want. In that final book of Scripture, what we see is the future of goodbyes. What I want to point out is that it's a wonderful future. You see, not all goodbyes are bad or even painful. In fact, there's a good many goodbyes that uh, we should look forward to. Turn to Revelation 6. Revelation 6 and verse 10. You really have a repetition of the cry of the godly throughout the ages. Here's those that had been martyred uh, during the tribulation. And uh, look what it says in verse 10. What are they crying out? How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? White robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. The cry of the godly through the ages has been what? How long, O Lord? How long will you let the lofty looks of man curse your name? How long will we see evil prevail? Well, one of the things we see in Revelation is goodbye to waiting for God to deal with world rebellion. You turn to chapter 10, this mighty angel comes down from heaven, clothed with the cloud. In verse 1, a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And when he cries, these seven thunders utter their voices. His voice just reverberates across the earth. Look what he does in verse 5. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven 
and the things that therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. That word time means to delay. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. As he hath declared to his servants, the prophets. We're going to say goodbye to waiting for God to deal with world rebellion. Today that mighty angel comes and he raises his fist and he says, time's up. No more delay. Chapter 12. We see war in heaven beginning in verse 7. And we see Satan fighting there. Now it's a long discussion. Satan was thrown out of heaven as his abode back at the beginning when he sinned, but he has had access limited to the throne of God ever since. You see that in the book of Job. But we see there in Revelation 12, it's goodbye to Satan even being permitted up there. Verse 9, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. I heard a loud voice saying, In heaven now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. God sovereignly allows Satan to accuse you, but I'm telling you the day's coming where God's going to say to him for the final time, silence. No more. Goodbye to the accusations. In Revelation 17, we say goodbye to false religion. Goodbye, mother of harlots and abominations of the earth and good riddance. Goodbye, cults. Goodbye, false Christs. Goodbye, false gospels. Goodbye, religious confusion. Goodbye, satanic counterfeits. Goodbye, persecution against real Christians by those pretending to know God. Goodbye, relics. Goodbye, icons. Goodbye, statues. Goodbye, false, demonic, repetitious prayers. Goodbye. In fact, you see there the Antichrist is going to use religion as his pawn to gain world control. Then he's going to turn and tear it to shreds. Revelation 18. We see the goodbye that's going to happen to this satanically controlled world system. In fact, if you jump to the very end of that chapter, here's the description. In her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. Remember Babylon began back in the plain of Shinar with Nimrod and then the Tower of Babel? That has been depicted, the depiction of this anti-God progressive world agenda that's been around ever since. Revelation 18, you see that whole system destroyed in a day. Verse 2, this angel cries mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, the hold of every foul spirit, the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Verse 5, her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. 
Now I'm of the private opinion that literal Babylon will be rebuilt at the end times in the Antichrist kingdom. That's a big discussion. But regardless of whether or not that city's rebuilt, the system of Babel is going to be wiped out. And look what the Lord says our response to this goodbye is. Look at verse 20. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down, and shall be found, and shall be found no more at all. Goodbye, Babylon. Chapter 19, there's lots of goodbyes here if you compare it with other passages. Beginning in verse 11, though, you see the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and him that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. In righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven, that's the New Testament Christians, followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Well, here you have Jesus returning to the earth bodily at his second coming with the saints following behind on gleaming white robes and horses. What are all the goodbyes that happen there? There's a lot if you compare other passages. You could look at Zechariah 12 and 14, for instance. At the second coming of Christ, you can say goodbye to anti-Semitism. That will be the last final revolt and attempt to try to wipe out the Jews. And just as these God-hating rebels have their filthy fingers on all the trinkets of Jerusalem, King Jesus comes back roaring out of the heavens and I'm going to tell you, it's an ugly day to be a Jew hater then. Goodbye, anti-Semitism. You can say in that same day, goodbye to the veil on Jewish eyes. Right now, nationally, they've been blinded. When King Jesus returns, all Israel that remains will be saved in a single day. They'll look on him whom they have pierced. It will be goodbye to imperfect world rulers. Goodbye injustice. Goodbye inequity. Goodbye unfairness. Goodbye bribery. Goodbye treachery. Goodbye rigged election boxes. Goodbye elections at all. Hallelujah to that. I'm glad we can vote. But I'm looking forward to the day where King Jesus takes his throne and nobody gets a vote. Look at verse 20 and 21. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, in which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. You ever see a picture of a massive male lion picking up some hapless victim by the back of the neck and just thrashing it around like a rag doll? That's the picture depicted there. This one called the Antichrist is going to destroy the world through peace. Oh, so powerful. Oh, so eloquent. Ruling by the power of the devil. But can I tell you something? When the lion of the tribe of Judah splits the heavens and shows up on this earth, he's going to pick him up like a disgusting rag doll and fling him alive into hell. 
Goodbye, Antichrist, and all your system with you, and good riddance. It's a very sobering goodbye there in verses 11 to 15. We see the dead, those that didn't know Christ, stand before God, small and great. And tragically there, you say goodbye with finality from the universe of every single Christ rejecter that's ever lived. Moving into verse 21. Verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. Goodbye to the old heavens and earth. No more museums, graveyards, battle zones, archaeology sites. No more visible reminders of what was except for the scars that remain in the hands of the Son of God. We say goodbye to the sea in that same passage. No more tempest, no more distance, no more fearful unknowns. How about verse 3? I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with, the, with men, and he will dwell with them. Goodbye to distance from God. How about verse 4? Goodbye to tears. Goodbye to death. Goodbye to sorrow. Goodbye to crying. Goodbye, pain. Verse 5, he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. I don't know that our mind can really fathom what it means to see all things made new. I mean, there's a world coming that we don't really know what resemblance it'll bear to the laws of science here at all will likely be very, very different, far more glorious. But here's another thing that shows us. And that day it will be goodbye to goodbyes. Nobody knows what language is going to be spoken there. It's probably a language that does not now exist. But I can tell you this with some certainty. The word goodbye is not going to be a part of it. It will be an unknown concept. It will be one everlasting hello. No distance needed from the Lord's people. No distance from God. No desire unfulfilled. No sin to battle. Knowing nothing of exhaustion and pain and death and tears and sorrow or any other negative thing that came in because of sin. It will be goodbye to goodbyes. But we know now goodbyes are certain for a little while. Sometimes they hurt. Sometimes we don't know why they happen. Sometimes it's unexpected when it happens. And sometimes they are commanded by God. But for now, I think we can have joy mingled with sorrow. Rejoice in the Lord's leading that we have a good bye this morning. We have a clear directive of the Lord to send somebody forth into the harvest. And I want to remind us, the Johnson family's not going on vacation. And I hope we can say it's not out of sight, out of mind. 
This family has been commissioned to war. They're going forward bearing the banner of the cross. And it's our privilege and our calling to uphold them in prayer in whatever other way we can. So for now, we'll enjoy a meal downstairs, reminisce, shed some tears, and go forward together as fellow soldiers in the Lord's army. Now I want to have, it's going to be hard for Eric, I'll have you come up here for a second. Julie's buried with sleeping young folk. But I want to present the Johnsons with some things. Um, a couple of cards from us. And uh, here's this is new pastor study sign, so I didn't forget what he is. <laughs> and uh, one of our favorite Bible passages. It's Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. So, you may go sit downstairs. Thank you. So, here's what we're going to do we're going to sing an a cappella hymn. And in fact, I'm going to thank the Lord for our food downstairs. I do hope everyone's able to stay. And then, in fact, let's stand up. And then we're going to sing. We're going to turn to song number 328. Let's pray. Then we'll sing. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to share one more meal together with this dear family. We thank you for sending them here. And Lord, we can say by faith, thank you for sending them away. Because we know that your will is best. You tell us in everything, give thanks. Lord, we give you thanks in this. We give you thanks for the friendships that have been built. And we thank you, Lord God, for the door you've opened for this dear family. Lord, bless this food that we're about to eat. And I pray bless them on their journey. Help them to be very cognizant of your leading, your guidance, your love towards them, and your enabling. The days of consternation will come, but your wisdom is more than sufficient. You delight to give it. Thank you for this last precious morning here together. Amen. <clears throat>